going to continue in our study of John, and we're coming to the close. Next week will be the final message on this prayer of our Lord. Um, as I mentioned when we began, who is adequate for these things? Uh, this is such a profound section of Scripture as we're allowed to eavesdrop on the Son of God as he prays right on the verge of his own crucifixion. And uh, this is truly holy ground, so I covet your prayers as I try to expound it faithfully. I want to cover verses 20 through 23 this morning. There should be an outline in your bulletin. If you didn't get one, feel free to grab one now. And there are printed messages, as always, as well as on the church website. You can access all of those. Jesus here says, I don't ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. So Jesus is praying for you right here, okay, and me. That they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you have loved me. Well, it's pretty obvious that our subject is uh, Christian unity. Jesus mentions it in verse 21, verse 22, and verse 23. So three out of the four verses here, you can't dodge it. Ironically, there is a lot of widespread controversy and difference of opinion on the subject of unity, and as I speak on it, I am aware that we have lost people from this church when I have spoken on this in the past, and um, some of you may be offended by what I say this morning, and all I would appeal to you is, go to the Word of God, it is our standard, and if I'm somehow misinterpreting it, here I am, uh, please come talk to me. But I'm seeking to be faithful to what the Lord has told us in the Word. That is our standard for faith and practice. Uh, sadly, there are more than 40,000 Christian denominations. It varies the number depending on who's counting. But that's kind of a median number. And they are growing daily. Um, there are hundreds every year added to the list of Christian denominations. Whenever the subject of unity comes up, I always think of the uh, well-known chorus, uh, we are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord. You know, we've probably sung it here against my preference. <clears throat> I can't stand that song. Let me tell you why. There are two reasons I can't stand that song. One is it comes right out of the Catholic charismatic movement, not out of Protestant circles. And uh, that means it's tainted with some serious doctrinal error. I mean, are we really one with every group that calls itself Christian, even if they say that we have to add our good works to 
the gospel of God's grace in order to be saved, um, it's really the issue that Paul confronts in the book of Galatians. If you don't know the story there, there was a group of men who were called Judaizers, and they said, we believe in Jesus. We believe that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. We just believe that in addition to that, you must also be circumcised and keep the law of Moses to be saved. And the Apostle Paul did not say, well, let's lay aside the areas where we differ and let's come together in the areas where we all agree because after all, we are to be one big happy family in the Lord. He did not say that. Instead, very strongly, he said, let them, literally, let them be damned. Let them be eternally accursed because they are preaching a different gospel, which is not a gospel at all. So Paul was very, very strong on that. And um, I think we need to take heed when we talk about unity. A second reason I dislike that chorus is more personal, because when I was in boot camp in the Coast Guard, there was one morning a week when we had, quote, freedom. Uh, you weren't under their thumb. They couldn't come in and make you march and do all the other crazy things they did in the middle of the night. And that was Sunday morning. And so a lot of us, just to gain freedom, marched down to the chapel and sat there and listened to the liberal chaplain who, in his talk on sex, basically said, now, guys, I know you're going to do it, but when you do, just be careful not to get an STD. That was where this guy was. And I went once, and I heard all of these foul-mouthed guys who all week long had talked about their sexual exploits and used uh, foul language all week, and they all went in and joined arms and sang, we are one in the Spirit, we are one in the Lord. And once was enough. I, one time I went, after that I would take my Bible and sit outside in the lobby and read my Bible while I listened to all of these pagans sing of their unity in the Spirit. And so now you know why I didn't pick that as our closing song this morning, okay? Um, but anyway, what I want to try and do this morning is help you understand what true Christian unity is all about. And I want to answer three questions. First, what is Christian unity? Secondly, why is it important? And thirdly, how is it expressed? And so to sum all of that up, Christian unity is based on shared life in Christ. It is a major source of witness to the world, and it is expressed through common love, common purpose, and common mission. So first, I want to examine the question, what is Christian unity? And I believe that Christian unity is not organization, it is not external, but rather it is based on shared life in Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to understand that there are two aspects of unity in the Bible, and we see them both in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians 4.3, Paul prays, or exhorts, I should say, the church, that we are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The unity of the Spirit is a fact that exists for believers. He doesn't say we are to work for it. He says we are to preserve it. It exists, and yet there is responsibility on our part to be diligent to preserve it. And then a few verses later, 
in Ephesians 4.13, Paul says that when pastor teachers do their job teaching the word, uh, equipping the saints for the work of ministry, that the body grows until, he says, we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And so the unity of the faith is not yet a reality. It is something that we attain to as we all grow in maturity in Jesus Christ. Um, A similar parallel is in Ephesians 2, and for sake of time, I won't turn there. Uh, But we see it here in our text as well. Um, There's what we might call positional unity. It exists. We are to preserve it. And there is practical unity. We are to attain to it. It's a work in progress. In our text in verse 21 and 22, Jesus prays that all who uh, believe in him would be one, even as he and the Father are one. I believe that prayer was answered on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit baptized all believers into the one body of Jesus Christ. And so that prayer has been answered. It is a uh, done deal, so to speak. All who believe in Christ are, in fact, one. That's positional unity. And then in verse 23, Jesus prays that believers may be perfected in unity. That implies we are not yet there. This this is something we are to grow towards as we mature. So it's somewhat parallel to sanctification. The Bible says we are all sanctified positionally in Christ, and yet we are to grow in sanctification or holiness progressively over time. So first of all, let's look at the negative. The Christian unity is not organizational unity. It is not external unity. And we can break this down in uh, three ways. First of all, Christian unity is not denominational unity. Uh, There are organizations like the World Council of Churches and the National Council of Churches. I went on their website this week to see what they're up to. And um, the idea there is we are to set aside every area where we differ and come together on those few areas maybe where we agree and work together for a common cause. Both of those councils are notoriously liberal, both theologically and politically liberal, and they are inclusive of denominations that deny the gospel. Uh, That is not their core, Um, and I just do not think Christ here is praying for that sort of political, uh, organizational unity uh, where there's a one-world church under one leader and one church government kind of thing. The second thing to say is Christian unity is not uniformity. Being one body in Christ doesn't mean we all have to look alike, act alike, think alike on every issue, like the same things. Um, Back in the 1970s, I was uh, part of a a group, kind of a hippie church. Of course, I wasn't a hippie, but, you know, most of the guys had the long hair and the beards and all of that wore blue jeans and T-shirts and sandals. And a number of them got swept up by a guy named Witness Lee, a Chinese evangelist who came over to America 
and was promoting a thing called the local church. Uh, remnants of it are here in Flagstaff, I discovered when I moved here. And uh, I know some of the people involved in that. But the interesting thing was, overnight, these guys cut off their long hair and their beards. They started wearing white dress shirts with narrow black ties, because Witness Lee did. And they even spoke like Witness Lee with a Chinese accent and gestured like Witness Lee when they talked. And it was really eerie. I mean, you know, you'd meet these guys and you'd go, you know, he looked totally different last week. And here he was, but boy, they, you could line them up in a row and they all look like ducks and quack like ducks and walk like ducks because they were ducks, you know. But it's not biblical unity. I mean, the very analogy that we are the body of Christ means we look different. My hand looks different than my arm, looks different than my chest and so on. God made the body of many different parts. And the idea is we are all, though different, to work together as one body. A third thing about Christian unity, it's not unanimity on every doctrine. And here we need to think very carefully. As I've thought about it, I think we can divide doctrine among three broad divisions. And as I'll mention, there are some gray areas between them. But first of all, at the core, there are essential truths that are necessary for salvation. And to deny any of these truths is a denial of the Christian faith. And so all true Christians believe these doctrines. Uh, The inspiration and authority of Scripture. If you throw that out, we have no standard. Um, The Trinity. The full deity and full humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, His substitutionary death on the cross for our sins. Uh, His bodily resurrection from the dead. His bodily second coming. Um, Salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. These are core doctrines. And to deny any one of them, you are not a Christian in the biblical sense of the term. A second level are what we might call important truths, but they are not necessary for salvation. In other words, these truths are important because they really do affect how we live. They affect how we think about God, man, salvation, the Christian life, how it's lived. And yet there are genuine believers who differ in these areas. Let me give you some examples. Biblical prophecy. Godly people differ on their understanding of prophecy. Uh, Calvinism versus Arminianism. In other words, issues of how sovereign is God over the matter of salvation and what role does man's will play versus God's will. Uh, Baptism. Is it infant baptism? Is it believer's baptism? Is it sprinkling or is it immersion? All those issues. Charismatic gifts. Are they still functional today and what are they? Roles of men and women in the local church and at home. Uh, How is the church to be governed? Uh, Christians in psychology. What about the early chapters of Genesis and the doctrine of creation? You know, is it a young earth, old earth, all those issues. Now, some of those issues are more important than others because some of them border on really essential truth. 
uh, some of the matters in, in Calvinism versus Arminianism, for example, if you deny the sovereignty of God, boy, that is profound. Uh, that really gets serious. And so there's gray areas. I'm not saying there's a clear line of demarcation. Uh, some issues, such as biblical prophecy, perhaps are not as important as issues that touch on salvation. But anyway, there are these important truths. I will, in a friendly way, debate them with Christians who differ with me, uh, but they are not, I'm not saying they're not Christian if they don't agree with me, okay? And then there's a third area that we might call interesting, uh, but not essential or important matters. And these matters are not going to really affect how you live your Christian life. Um, they are not uh, some of them are just interpretive issues. How do you interpret this difficult text? Some of them are methods, you know, that are not mandated in Scripture. Let me give you a couple of examples. There is big debate over who are the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6. When the sons of God uh, came down and cohabited with women and produced this other race. Some say they're angels, some say they're uh, men and so on. Well, you can debate that all day long, and I predict it won't affect how you live tomorrow morning. It's just not that relevant to your Christian walk. Uh, another one, and we spent a whole week on this in seminary. I was going nuts. Uh, when does the battle in Ezekiel 38 take place? Who knows? And really, I don't know what difference that makes in how I live my Christian life, wherever I come out on that issue. Another one in 1 Peter 3, did Christ actually descend into hell or not? So there's those kind of issues. So when you encounter someone holding a different view, it's important that you be discerning on where does this fall in the scale and how crucial is it to that person's salvation and Christian walk and be very careful not to divide over non-essential, uh, interesting doctrine. In 1 Timothy 1, Paul tells Timothy not to pay attention to myths or endless genealogies, which he says all they do is give rise to mere speculation. And then he goes on and he tells him that our teaching leads to love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So that's to be our focus, our bottom line, not controversies over stuff that nobody really can decide about. So Christian unity, then, negatively, is not organizational unity. It is not external unity. Well, what is it? Christian unity, as I've said, is based on shared life through faith in Christ, and that comes through the apostolic witness to Christ. Uh, if you have put your trust in Christ, as I said, he's praying for you here and in verse 20, he says, I don't ask on behalf of these alone, meaning the 11 apostles, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Two things here. First, Christian unity is based on our common salvation in Jesus Christ. And again, Christ is not praying here for the whole world. We saw that up in verse 9. He's not praying for interfaith unity. Uh, this last Thursday, in the National Day of Prayer, one of the local churches in town 
has an interfaith prayer service where Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, you name it, native religions, whatever they may be, all come together and pray and affirm each other's faith. Uh, What an abomination. That is not what Christ is praying for. He's praying for those who believe in him through the apostles' word. And that includes you if you have believed the gospel. Because the apostles' word is recorded for us in the New Testament. And if you are a believer, you have believed in the apostles' witness to Jesus Christ, which the Spirit inspired them to write down, which we have in our Bible. The core uh, message of the apostolic witness is salvation through faith in the life, the substitutionary death, the bodily resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. Back in John 1.12, we read this, But as many as received him, Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to them or to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And that's what unites us is we are born of God into the family of God, the one body of Jesus Christ. And so the new birth is the basis of our unity in Christ. And Jesus compares that unity in verse 21 with that which exists between him and the Father. You'll notice he says that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Jesus and the Father are one eternally because of their shared nature as God, their shared nature. And when we are born again, we become children of God. We receive of his divine nature, 2 Peter chapter 1 says. And so that's how Jesus' prayer was answered, that through the new birth, his children all become one. And it was answered especially on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came on the church and now everyone who is born of God is baptized into the one body of Christ. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, He says, therefore, by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And then to clarify, whether Jews or Greeks, and there was a huge divide between those groups, Whether slaves or free, big cultural divide there. But he says, we were all baptized into one body, he adds, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. And so that's the same as the unity of the spirit that I mentioned earlier in Ephesians 4, 3. It is a fact, and yet, of course, we must be diligent to preserve that. Secondly, Christian unity, Jesus says here, is based on our common glory in Jesus Christ. And here we're in verse 22. He says, the glory which you have given me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. Now, here's a place where we can't be dogmatic because commentators differ on what Jesus means. But we know this, Jesus Christ has an incommunicable glory, which he did not receive 
and which he does not impart to others. In other words, he stands apart. He is eternally glorious as God. And in that sense, Isaiah 42, 8, the Lord says, I don't share my glory with any created being. He is distinct and apart in his glorious eternality. But there is a sense that he does share his glory. We can piece together several verses. Remember in John 1, 14, John said, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then jumping down two verses, verse 16, he adds, For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. And so, in part, the glory that Christ imparted to us is the glory of our salvation. It is the glory that we receive by grace and is sustained by grace. That is a glory to every believer. Also, for Jesus, the epitome of his glory, as we've seen in our study of John, was at the cross. The cross displayed the love of God, the justice of God, the righteousness of God, the mercy of God, the holiness of God, uh, the grace of God, all of those things were supremely displayed at the cross where he gave himself as the sacrifice for our sins. And that leads Leon Morris, who's one of the better commentators on John, to interpret the glory that Jesus gave his disciples as follows. He said, Just as his true glory was to follow the path of lowly service culminating in the cross, so for them the true glory lay in the path of lowly service wherever it may lead them. And uh, D.A. Carson agrees with um, Morris, and both of them cite William Barclay, who says this, We must never think of our cross as our penalty. We must think of it as our glory. The harder the task we give a student or a craftsman or a surgeon, the more we honor him. So when it is hard to be a Christian, we must regard it as our glory, as our honor given to us by God. Also, I believe in verse 23, Jesus goes on to explain more of what that glory entails when he says this, I in them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Now, there are two parts to that. The first part is, I in them and you in me. In other words, Christ indwelling the believer is to the believer's glory. We have this treasure in our earthen vessels, the treasure of Christ in us, the hope of glory. And so even though the world may not see it really clearly, as we are perfected in unity, as the fruit of the Spirit is demonstrated in our lives, the world gets a little glimmer, a little glimpse of the glory of uh, the triune God. A second aspect of that verse, Jesus says, The Father has loved us even as he loved Jesus. I didn't hear any gasps, but there should be some. Like, wow, that is staggering. Did you 
hear that statement? The Father loves believers in Christ as much as he loves his own Son. What an amazing statement. The love of the Father for the Son is infinite and it's eternal. There's just no way to measure it. Paul says it surpasses comprehension. We, we cannot get our minds around it. And of course, the best picture of the Father's love for us is the cross, where he sent his own glorious Son, who laid aside his glory, took on the form of a bondservant, and went to a horrible death on the cross so that we could be reconciled to God through him. And I, I just, in studying that this week, and then it's going to be again next week in the message that I've been working on already, it just hits me. I want, and for me, and I want for you, to experience the love of God in Christ on a deeper and deeper level. It ought to be motivating every day of our lives, what we do, how we think, how we act. We ought to be growing in it. And that love is your glory, and it's the common glory of every believer in Jesus Christ. It brings us together into the one worldwide family of God, and that is this question, have you experienced the love of God in Christ? And if somebody from Nepal or China or Africa or South America says, oh, yes, Instantly, there's a unity, isn't there? You know, this is my brother. And I have experienced that when we've traveled abroad or even in America when I meet someone from a very different background, very different mindset, and I find out, oh, you've experienced the love of God in Christ? So have I. And instantly, there's unity. There's a oneness in Christ. So our unity is based then on our common salvation in Christ and our common glory in Christ. Let me move to a second question. Why is that unity important? Christian unity is important because it's a major factor in our witness to the world so that they may believe in Christ, and Jesus mentions it twice. In verse 21, he prays that we may all be one so that the world may believe that you sent me. And then in verse 23, he prays that we may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me. Now, notice, first of all, that faith is not nebulous. It's not subjective. Faith centers on the truth about Jesus Christ, that he is the eternal God, that the Father sent him to this earth. He is God in human flesh who bore our sin on the cross. And John repeatedly emphasizes that truth that God sent Jesus to be the Savior of the world, the Savior of all who believe in him. But how can the world believe in Jesus? Well, Paul explains that in Romans 10, 14 and 15, where he says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they're sent, just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. And that, that verse is saying, you and I are often the only Bible that people read. 
They don't pick up the written word of God and read it in many cases, sadly. But they know a Christian. Maybe it's you. And through you, they might see something of the truth, the beauty of Jesus Christ. And so both by our testimony of our lives that we are distinct and as God gives opening by our verbal witness, we proclaim our visible unity with all other believers. We proclaim to the world the truth God sent his Savior to be the propitiation, the sacrifice for our sins on the cross and to give eternal life to all who believe. And that leads to the third question. How then is Christian unity expressed? And I believe it's expressed by the believer's common love, by our common purpose, and by our common mission. First of all, by believer's common love. And to go back, Jesus makes this staggering statement that the Father has loved us even as much as he loved Jesus. And we're going to be in heaven for a billion years trying to plumb the depths of that, and we'll all get together and say, you know what? We're just scratching the surface of the Father's love. We do not get it even yet. It is that great, that deep. But that love of God in Christ should be shaping your daily walk in Christ. How you think, judging sinful thoughts, thinking on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, as Colossians 3 tells us to do, your verbal exchange with others, your concern and care for others. I I think the love of God for us in Christ is maybe nowhere more eloquently expressed than in that great crescendo at the end of Romans 8, where after naming any conceivable thing, Paul says, I am convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Some of you who are parents have had this experience. I remember, it's 37 or 8 years ago now, I was sitting and I was holding our firstborn daughter, who was just an infant in my lap. And as parents do, you just gaze at your child and marvel that God created this little being and gave her, in this case, to us. And as I felt the love for her well up in my heart and I was looking at her with tears in my eyes, it dawned on me suddenly, I'll bet my mom and dad love me the same way that I love my child. And I'd never thought about that before because I had never had a child before. And I'd never felt those feelings before. And then as I sat there, I thought, and the heavenly father loves me far more than any earthly father ever could begin to love his child. And I was just overwhelmed with the great love of God in Christ. Now, how do you apply that? Well, John doesn't leave us nebulous on that. In 1 John 4.11, he makes this very simple application. Beloved. If God so loved us, here's the application, we also ought to love one another. That's pretty simple to state, but isn't it tough to apply? (laughs) Boy, that's a hard one to apply. 
And yet, you know, it's the second great commandment. After loving God, we are to love our neighbor, even as we, in fact, love ourselves. If we just come up to that level, we'll be doing okay. Now, I confess it's relatively easy to love people who are like me. After all, if they're like me, I love me. So, you know, yeah, they're pretty good. That's not hard. The rub comes in loving people who are very different than I am. And that's where it gets difficult. Um, in, in Paul's day, there were divides. And in our day, those same divides exist. There are different races. There are cultural differences. Uh, right here in this body, there are generational differences. Some of you are Members of the great generation, as Tom Brokaw called it. And then there are everything down to infants. So we have generational differences. There are economic divides. All sorts of differences. And yet, the beauty of the body is that we all come together in one body and the world goes, Whoa, what's drawn all those people together? They're all different. They're all different. In Paul's day, as I mentioned, Jew and Greek, it was a greater divide than blacks and whites in the South during the uh, uh, past generations in America. It was a huge difference. And Paul emphasized that the glory of the church is that those differences should not divide. In Ephesians Chapter 2, he mentions how Christ made those two groups one, and he's building them into a holy temple in the Lord, one temple. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 11, Paul says that in the church, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. And so the idea is when people that in the world are naturally divided and yet they come together as one in the church, when they show the love of Christ one to another, and the book of Philemon is all about this. As a slave owner, Paul tells Philemon, welcome back your runaway slave Onesimus, not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ, because I've led him to Christ. That was radical stuff. And the world perks up and takes notice. Back in the early 1970s, when I was in the Coast Guard up in the Bay Area of California, I had the privilege a couple of times of driving down to Palo Alto and attending this evening, what they called a body life service at Peninsula Bible Church. Uh, Ray Stedman, who's now with the Lord, was the pastor there at that time. And it was pretty radical for the day. Uh, you had these sweet little old grandmas with white hair sitting there and right next to them, often with their arm around them, was a long-haired hippie with uh, blue jeans, bare feet, the whole, you know, difference in culture. And they would get up and share. It was an open kind of service. And as you heard the stories, some of these hippies would say, you know, I was out on the street and hungry, and this little old lady came out and brought me a sandwich, and and through that, I came to this church, and I heard the gospel, and I'm a believer in Christ now. And uh, the story after story after story like that, it was radical stuff. And people in the area would hear these stories, and they'd just come to gawk, you know, and 
look around and go, wow, what's happening here? And through that, many of them came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's the idea that uh, John is, Jesus is getting across here in our text, that when the, the world sees this display of Christian love across these natural divides, they're going to perk up and many will believe. So Christian unity is expressed then by our common love. Secondly, it's expressed by our common purpose. We have different gifts. We have different backgrounds, different callings, but we all have one purpose, and that is to glorify God in everything that we are and everything that we do. How do we glorify God? We glorify God by obedience to the Word of God. We glorify God by bearing much fruit in our lives. We glorify God as we are more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And so we all have that same purpose. Whatever our gifts, whatever our differences in life, we are to glorify our Lord and Savior. And then finally, Christian unity is expressed by believers' common mission. Uh, Paul is urging the Philippian church, which was experiencing some conflicts, to unity, and he said this in Philippians 1.27, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's what unified them. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so our common mission is the Great Commission to disciple the nations to go and make disciples of all the nations. And however we do that, that is our one mission. And we may differ with other believers over secondary matters. And Paul in Philippians 1, you remember, mentioned how some were preaching Christ out of strife and and enmity and so on to get kind of get at him. And he said, as long as Christ is preached, that's all that matters. And, you know, that should be our standard. Is the gospel being preached? Okay, I may not agree with these people on every jot and tittle, but the gospel is core. And if it's going out, then that's the issue. Well, I could spend several messages trying to get into the practical ramifications of this. If you want to see more of my thinking on it, I wrote a paper called Separation Versus Cooperation, and you can find that on the church website under the articles tab. You can read it later. But let me just give you two thoughts to chew on as I wrap this up. First of all, while we must strive to love and accept all whom Christ has truly saved, we also need to be careful not to compromise essential biblical truth. And in my judgment, the greater error in our day is we love, but we compromise rather than we don't love and we hold to the truth. I just see it all the time, the emphasis. Well, we've got to love one another. And meanwhile, they're compromising essential truth. I think that was illustrated in the 1990s. A number of evangelicals got together with the Catholics, and they came up with a statement called Evangelicals and Catholics Together. And a number of well-known Christian evangelicals signed that document. I believe that document confused and compromised the essential truth of the Reformation 
That is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is the gospel. Interestingly, this week, I'm preparing this message. I got an email out of the blue from some Catholic monk that I've never met in my life. And he told me that if I really wanted to understand the gospel, I needed to watch his video. And it was an hour and a half, so I didn't have time to watch the whole thing. But I started watching it, and he was blasting John MacArthur and John Piper and R.C. Sproul and uh, Erwin Lutzer and James White and a number of evangelicals because they believe that we are justified by grace through faith alone. And this monk was saying, no, uh, James says we're justified by works. And so he was attacking the gospel. But that's really, as I said at the start of the message, the Galatian heresy. So the Galatian heresy. It's not by grace through faith in Christ alone. You've got to add circumcision. Then you're in. You've got to add, name the work, and you're in. And Paul didn't say, well, let's set aside where we differ, guys, and come together on common ground. You know, evangelicals and Judaizers together. He didn't do that. He drew that line. And very sharply, he said, those men are accursed. A second thought, just to wrap this up, and final thought. While, while we need walls of separation, both as individuals and as a church, uh, those walls may be different on the individual and, and corporate levels. Let me explain. For example, maybe I meet a Catholic priest and we sit down and talk, and, and I determine, you know, this man really knows Christ. He has believed in the gospel that we are saved by grace through faith alone. All right, if that's true, I can have a measure of fellowship with him. It's not the unity of the, or it's not the uh, yeah, unity of the faith because he has not matured in faith enough to repudiate that false church. But there's the gospel there. So there's the unity of the spirit there. And I can get with him. And after a while, as I've built the relationship and he knows I love him, I'm going to challenge him. You need to draw some lines here, brother. You need to leave this apostate church. That's on an individual level. But I could never get up on a corporate level and say, oh, we're one with the Catholics because I know a Catholic Christian. That is to confuse the gospel. And I know evangelical pastors who have traded pulpits with Catholic priests. I think that's an abomination because you're saying there's no difference. Oh, yeah, they do a few rituals and we don't. Uh, That's not the issue. The issue is the gospel. And so we have to be very careful. And I get criticized as being a separatist because I don't participate in unity services where groups that deny the gospel are a part of the unity service. I just don't do that. That's confusing. When I first came here, I was invited to a service, and I went naively, and I just thought I'd sit in the congregation and see what's going on. Well, the man organizing it invited me up onto the stage, and he sat me down next to the Catholic priest over at uh, Nativity at the time. And I'm going, ay, 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 here I am on the stage next to a priest, And then they said, now turn to the one next to you and join hands and pray together. So I turned away from him to whoever it was on the other side and prayed with him. And then after the service, I went up to the man who organized it. I said, look, if you want me a part of this, you need to draw some lines. This is bad. I said, you're communicating that there is no difference 
And until I hear that the church has repudiated the Council of Trent, which says that those who believe in justification by faith alone are anathema, I said, I'm not one with those people publicly. The gospel is at stake. And so I realize that's offensive to some. And I realize that there are many who say, oh, well, you know, I know a Catholic who's a Christian. Okay, fine. I do too. But they shouldn't be in an apostate church. And you need to lovingly build a relationship with them where you can eventually share that with them. So my plea this morning is pray for discernment. Be gracious to all people. If they truly know Christ on an individual level, you can have a relationship, a fellowship. But in that, you strive for the unity of the faith. You attain to that as you share in love with them. So we can't compromise the gospel. We shouldn't minimize important truth, but we should affirm true unity with all who know Christ. If you have any questions on it, I'm more than open to interact with any of you, so I hope you'll do that rather than um, get offended and leave, okay? Let's pray. Dear Lord, these are difficult matters for us to apply practically. We want the love of Christ to be paramount in our hearts and lives, but we don't want to compromise truth because love without truth is mere sentiment and damns many to hell. Truth without love can be harsh. And so, Father, help us to speak the truth in love to every person. If there are those here this morning, Lord, who do not know Jesus and his love at the cross, I pray that your Holy Spirit would open their eyes to see that their good works cannot save them, that none qualify for heaven based on works, but that Christ offered the perfect and final sacrifice on the cross, and that it is freely received by all who will receive it in faith. And I ask that for your purpose and your glory to be in our hearts, for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're going to take an offering as we conclude our service, and if you're a visitor with us, we don't expect you to to give. Um, There is a welcome card in the rack in front of you. If you'd be kind enough to fill it out, with your contact info, and go through the doors to the right, or my right, your left, or behind you, going out to Beaver Street. There's a, a little um, basket with some gift bags, and there's a, a a CD and a postcard and some other things in there. You can drop the card in the slot there and grab one of those. And then don't forget to go in and enjoy the refreshments that are available um, in honor of our mothers in the fireside room followed by a Sunday school class by Christian Young dealing with the theme of how our work interfaces with the gospel, uh, craftsmanship, and I think you'd be blessed to attend that. Uh, If you have a prayer need you'd like us to remember, drop it in the offering plate and we'll try to, uh, we will pray for you on Tuesday in our staff meeting. Let's stand and we're going to sing together.
usual, I'll be down by the piano. If you'd like prayer, please come down, and I'd be glad to pray with you. Again, uh, refreshments in the fireside room. Sunday school starting about a half an hour, and hope you can join us there. Um, as far as I know, there's no college group tonight. I think they're done for the semester. Is that correct? All right, all right. The food continues. Great. Good. Uh, that'll be at 6 over at the Lighthouse across the street. If you're new, college student, see Erin. She'll help you out. And uh, there's no evening service due to the Mother's Day. So have an enjoyable day. And again, God bless all of you moms. You're really doing a work that will count for eternity. So hang in there. See you next Sunday.